is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? Welcome to Box 39 here on Colm Radio with me, Bill Lawrence, and I'm joined this week by Bob May, Adrian Cohen, and Ausgang Solo. Because this week, with the prospect of the reopening of cinemas over a year of closures and restrictions, we're going to have a movie night. Yes, we're going to be examining six of the best films you could ever hope to see to rekindle and revive your love of the big screen. So come on, grab your popcorn, settle down in your biggest, most comfortable chair, because this is the Box 39 Night at the Movies. Box 39 with Bill Lawrence and Adrian Cohen. Joined this week by Bob May.
Indeed, we are here. Myself, Bill Lawrence, and Bob May sitting opposite me, and we're here at uh, Studio One at Colm Radio Towers, 106.6 FM, Colm Radio. And we have picked six of the best films, plucked them from the uh, gorgeous tree of films here in the studio, some music to go with them, and we're looking forward to return to movie nights, aren't we, Bob? We certainly are. Yeah, it's going to be wonderful. So we're going to start straight in with a film that many people will be familiar with. What's your first film, Bob? The first film I've chosen is A Clockwork Orange. A Clockwork Orange? What a strange phrase that is. What a strange title. We all know the title, but what on earth is A Clockwork Orange? Well, apparently A Clockwork Orange is uh, demonstrating the mixture between life in the orange and robotic in the clockwork and was a descriptor used by cockneys in the interwar years and they say hey, that geezer's a bit of a clockwork orange yeah so it wasn't rhyming slang it but it meant he was a a bit odd a hybrid a hybrid yeah not living but yet not living yeah not a, not a soulful person, but somehow sort of a bit cold and uh, almost machine-like. Yeah, and maybe a, 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 an analogy to communism. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, 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 this was uh, filmed, it came out rather, in 1971. So that's a good 50 years ago. Yes, it is. Uh, some people describe it as dystopian, wouldn't they? Well, and, and what does that mean, dystopian? Uh, it's, it's a. It was a look at the future where the world had become um, unruly and disorganised, and society had broken down to a degree. That rival gangs, uh, again, harking back to the mods and rockers of the sixties, but making them a futuristic pair of opposing gangs, um, where the the anti heroes wore white clothes with black bowler hats and black boots uh, a bit of makeup so there's an effeminate angle to it which skinheads didn't have and mods certainly didn't have Um, the other gang were portrayed as grubby and um, seedy so it's it's a real mixture of imagery, isn't it? it it's, it's quite a disturbing film, I would say. Uh, it employs disturbing images. It disturbs in the way that um, uh, peop- that that you actually view the film, in that he uses a lot of innovative and interesting camera techniques. It disturbs in the content of the film. It disturbs in the language of the film because they don't even speak proper uh, English. They speak no, sort of pidgin English. They certainly do. In the future. Yeah. So all in all, it's it's quite an unnerving film, isn't it? Bob? Very, very. Um, it was banned by a number of councils, including the whole of Essex. Uh, so a friend and I went to see it in London, Leicester Square. Um, and I must say, when it began, the, a combination of the huge screen there, we were in front row seats, superb stereo in a London cinema, the ominous music began, and Malcolm McDowell's face filled the screen. So let's, uh, I, I suppose we've, we've come at this from the wrong way. We should really have said what the film is about, and you could summarise it in that the central character, Malcolm McDowell, uh, a very charismatic, but he's an anti-social delinquent, isn't he? And yeah. He loves his classical music. He likes to commit rape and theft and what is called ultra-violence in the film. So you've got this sort of anti-hero, yeah. central character, who, who leads a small gang of thugs. So what happens during that film? Well, there are the government, uh, which is portrayed as very conservative. Um, there are obviously multiple gangs similar to Alex's gang. And the government decide that they need to crack down on this and they introduce a psychiatric aversion therapy as a method of curing, or curing in inverted commas, the nature of or the need for their violence. So before we go into this a little bit further, let's actually listen to what the author of the book that it was based on, uh, Anthony Burgess. Let's hear what he had to say when he first saw the film. I was in a very awkward situation. Kubrick invited me and my wife and my uh, agent, who was also a woman, to go and see it. And uh, I had a woman on either side of me watching this film, and Kubrick at the back. 
And after 10 minutes, my wife said, I can't stay, I'm going. And my, my agent said the same thing, I can't stay. I'm going. I said, for Christ's sake, you can't go. Stay, stay, stay. Kubrick's there behind. So we had to hang on to the end. Um, I, uh, I, was, uh, I was appalled because what I'd merely suggested in the book was now here explicitly in the film. I'd, I'd gone to great trouble in the book to hide the violence and the sexuality from the reader by using a very strange language. So that the writer had to, uh, the reader had to fight his way through the language to get at the, uh, the juice or to get uh -huh. at the um, physical reality. Here on the screen, we were getting the physical reality in a big way. Now he talks about that language. Most of the film is narrated by Alex, the the anti-hero, the Malcolm McDowell character, and it's narrated in in NADSAT, which is this fractured uh, adolescent slang, very much uh, made up of Slavic. Uh, a sort of Slavic, a cod Slavic nature, yes, um, bits correct. of Russian, but also some Cockney rhyming slang thrown in there, and some English as well. Quite a mix. And in Anthony Burgess's novel, there is a glossary at the back translating some of the words. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I've, it's a long time since I've seen this film, but I remember it being just a beast of a film to watch. Difficult to watch. It was difficult, yes. As, as I say, I was, I was quite awestruck by the yeah. beginning, and that does continue. Um, as Anthony said in that piece just now, he, he didn't want the violence to be the, the central thing. It was a commentary on how um, society and government crack down on something but too heavy-handed without really exploring the intricacies of it um, and that made it an intense and disturbing film because it burrows right under your skin and doesn't shy away from any of the shock you're, you're never really sure if you're supposed to be against Alex or on his side yeah and as I've described him as an anti-hero but it, it, he is compelling to watch I guess it's also about free will as, as you're alluding to that there, isn't it it's, it's uh, the importance of free, the free will of the people in a, a sort of technologically advanced society like you like you see in this dystopian society um, which uh, it tries to eliminate the possibility of, of crimes being committed um, um, to what degree are members of, the, of this community dehumanised by their government Yes, yeah, by treating the oranges, the living things, as all identical, but yeah. every orange is probably slightly different, and making them clockwork, you are dehumanizing them, you are taking away the intricate variety of what makes each of us individual. And you're taking away that, that elementary choice that we can all make between good and evil. Indeed, we, yes. So it's a, it's a stunning film, and uh, I, I think that is your first choice. It's a stunning first choice, Bob. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, not a film I've seen lately either, but it's well worth a watch. So we're going to move on to uh, a piece of music to do with this, and uh, you've chosen I Want to Marry a Lighthouse Keeper. Yeah, it's the only vocal track in the whole of the soundtrack, and, and it just is almost at contradiction to the whole theme of the film, but it, it fits within the narrative. I want to marry a lighthouse keeper and keep him company. I want to marry a lighthouse keeper and live by the side of the sea. I'll polish his lamp by the light of day so Welcome back, and that was Ausgang Solo with a wonderful piece of music from Henry called 
all sorted for Droogs and Maloko Plus, which I believe is a relevant uh, phrases from the film we've just been discussing. It certainly is, yes. Well, with this is Box 39, the magazine of music community, humour and chat, and we're coming live from Studio One, and uh, we've picked six of the best films, picked some music from them, and we're looking forward to return to movie nights here on planet Earth. So, having uh, talked about The Clockwork Orange, we're moving to what now, Bob, which I would describe as the nicest film ever made. What, what would you call this film? It's a beautiful film, yeah, I would agree with that. It's picked picks all the romance of the american wild west it's and its name is butch cassidy and the sundance kid yeah what a film what a film stars blue eyes himself paul newman paul newman and robert redford who really the film made him he was known but not a star now you've got interesting you were telling me that uh, paul newman wasn't first choice for this role Paul Newman thought he was going to play the Sundance Kid role, which is the younger member of the the pairing, um, right up until they actually did cast Robert Redford after a couple of rejections from big stars like Warren Beatty and... um, Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen, yeah. 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 So his third choice. Third choice. Rather like Ronnie Ronnie Barker in Porridge. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, it's a great film, isn't it? So, to put it in this bit of a context, they're, the, they're, they're naughty guys, they rob banks for a living, uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, they're outlaws, aren't they? Yeah, they're outlaws. In the Wild West, but they recognise the Wild West is coming to an end, the American government is stopping it being so wild, so they think, time to, time to leave, and head off to Bolivia, where it's still a bit wild, and we can... Yeah, America is getting a bit too sharp for them. They've got the Telegraph, uh, they've got banks have got a few bars and locks on the doors which they didn't have in the early days so life is getting hard in the u.s and uh, they decide in fact they don't really decide they are pushed to escape from north america because there's a very um accomplished posse on their trail but they're always the good guys in it. We're meant to very much empathise with them and like them, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. we don't see them kill anyone, which was the, the spin-off of the TV series, Alas, Smith and... Uh, yeah, Alas, Smith and Jones. Alias, Smith and Jones, Alias. I should say. Get, yeah. him, get my programme mixed. To me, it, it, uh, it fills that slot between the 1950s and 60s westerns, which was very much uh, the guy with the white hat versus the guy in the black hat. Yeah, where nothing so, got dirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the 1970s, the outlaw J.C. Wales and uh, the, the spaghetti westerns, which were very violent. Yeah, the, the and violence. And sort of filled the gap in between, a nice little humorous western. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a love interest as well, of course. And the, who, who played that love the interest? The beautiful Catherine Ross, oh. she's uh, Sundance's girlfriend. Yeah. And I think she was the perfect foil for it. It, it gave it the dimension it needed at, at that point in the film, that they had something to play off it made the audience see them as softer and more human. Yeah, yeah. And with a wonderful ending. Yes, yes. A, 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 an interesting ending. And that, a, a uh, cinematic milestone for an ending, really. certainly was. We don't see them die. Um, we assume they die. In fact, there is a rumour that Butch didn't die in that ambush and lived out his years. And that conceit was copied for Thelma and Louise, wasn't it? The female equivalent where they race their car yes, at the end yes, to an unknown to an unknown end. Ending. And almost directly copied for the final episode of Blackadder Goes Forth, of course, where they're, they're up over the uh, dugouts into the fire, but we don't see the inevitable outcome. So your music for this, this is inevitably, it's going to be this piece. This is from the most beautiful part of the film. Um, it's Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head by BJ Thomas. Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling So I just did me some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way he got things done Sleeping on the job Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling But there's one 
Raindrops keep falling on my head But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red Crying's not for me Cause I'm never gonna stop the rain by complaining Because I'm free Nothing's worrying me Steps up to greet me Raindrops keep falling on my head But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red Crying's not for me Cause I'm never gonna stop the rain by complaining Because I'm free Nothing's worrying me. Well, it's myself and Bob May today that are in the box, box 39. And uh, I'm here with Bob and we're talking about films. Bob's come up with six of the greatest films you could ever hope to see. And this is all uh, as we're being swept along in the tide of joy that is the reopening of cinemas soon. So, Bob, what have you chosen for your third film? I've chosen a 2002 action thriller film called The Bourne Identity. And that's based on a book by... Robert Ludlam. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the first of a series of films. It was the first of a trilogy of books, which actually managed to spawn five films. Um, and after Robert Ludlam's death, uh, another writer took over and wrote, I think, another 11 on the same um, character. So we're focusing on this is the first book and the first film. We're focusing on The Born Identity, the first book, yeah. So it stars Matt Damon. It stars Matt Damon, who, as the film opens, is floating apparently lifeless in the sea and is rescued by a fishing boat and nursed back to health on the boat. But as he recovers, he finds he knows nothing at all about himself, not even his name. So a very mysterious start with a mysterious person. Yeah. And what is the world that we find ourselves falling into? The, what we find is that he is a highly trained specialist agent or spy or killer for the CIA. And he has, uh, as the film moves on, we find he has failed on a mission, but also dropped out of favour with the CIA and they're keen to uh, capture him, silence him, recondition him. We're not quite sure. There's so this, a this lot is, of double dealing yeah. and intrigue. So this is a, a complex, mysterious world of, of spies and double agents. This is not just James Bond, really. Oh, it's so much more realistic. You You fully believe in Matt Damon's character that he can think on his feet, he can fight... He can use a ballpoint pen as a weapon, and it all looks believable. And and you get a, a huge sense of his fear that he is the only one in the world he can trust. Literally, the only one he can trust. And uh, it's, it's a well filmed. It look, looks good. It's good music. Good, yeah. Great cinematography. Um, it's it moves through various countries in Europe and obviously there are scenes set in an equivalent of the Pentagon or CIA headquarters somewhere in America um, and there are chases, there are um, very tense lengthy tense scenes where there's a sniper on his trail and yeah, it, and, and there's romance in it as well but it really is about a man as coming to terms with realising who he is and trying to protect himself and redeem the person he is. Before we talk about this anymore, let's actually hear from Robert Ludlam, the, uh, the writer of this film. 
Perhaps the nicest of all was top writer Robert Ludlam. I asked him why all these books had three-word titles. Well, it, it, it came about in a rather strange way. I had written three novels, and they were indeed three-word titles. And I didn't think anything about it. They just sort of seemed natural and seemed to tell this vague story of what I was, what I was writing. I brought in my fourth novel, and it was called Cable Tortugas. And there were these six grown men crying, saying, you can't do that, you can't do it. And I said, my God, it's that bad? And they said, no, not the book, the title. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, people are identifying you with three-word titles. I said, oh, come on, nobody's identifying me. I'm not, you know, I'm not in that position or anything like that. And they brought out an old copy of the New York Times that indeed someone had said that something about three-word titles and me. So Cable Tortugas became the Reinman Exchange. <laughs> I didn't want four adults or six adults crying and not sleeping, so I just changed it. And ever since then, it's been... Yeah. And are you going to keep going that way? I think so, because, you know, there, there's an old saying in the theatre, and I do come from the theatre, that if it's possible, commit the sin of typecasting. Well, that's very interesting there. Uh, why, why do you think people like this world of spies and spying and action-adventure? I, th I think even then, possibly more so now, that we are distrustful of uh, the state and what we're told is the right thing um, because as the film develops, we discover that the CIA have invoked a program uh, that they are now, at the varying levels of management, keen to distance themselves and cover their, um, their own... Uh, Backsides, I suppose. It's not, it's not the wrong word. And, and to varying levels. You never really know who is really pulling the strings. People also like a film with twists and turns, don't they? They like a, a plot that jump and twist. Yeah, and it, it certainly does. It, um, it, it moves at quite a pace throughout and appears to be going in a direction that you are suddenly thrown off course because... The man you were convinced is the baddie appears to be being conned himself by someone higher or by government. And you can see the popularity of this with however many, I forgot how many of these films and books you mentioned, it's never-ending supply of them. It's been the same, of course, with the uh, ubiquitous James Bond, hasn't it? I don't know how many films have been made, oh, 30 no. maybe? Quite possibly, A lot. yeah. Uh, and in fact, the r most recent James Bond film has sort of become a, a symbol for the um, difficulties of the film industry during the global pandemic, hasn't it? It certainly it, has, with the delays. The fact that it's been delayed and delayed. Um, yeah. and, uh, we're recording this in uh, May 2021, and even now it's not expected to be released until September That's 2021, yeah. if that. Um, It'd be interesting to see if it has suffered because of that delay, because the world does move on doesn't it yeah and the film industry are, are, are holding it back aren't they to use it as the carrot when cinemas reopen to bring people back into the cinema so it's almost like they're holding their best product back they don't want it to be just be sitting on the shelves no. unused and, and sort of going off they're yeah. keeping it but but it could couldn't it yeah it, it could become a turkey because yeah. of that yeah. yeah whereas I think these films that particularly the first three stand up they're, they're between 19 and 15 years old, um, but they still look very current. I don't really... I don't, I don't think I've seen a James Bond film since Timothy Dalton. Uh, I might have watched the new James Bond film to Casino Royale. Uh, yeah. uh, but I sort of used to like the old ones, and I, I, they're often on the television. I still quite enjoy them. I don't think they've gone off at all. No, well, I mean, they, they were a very, they were a very cod period, weren't they? Where they were just played for laughs. Um, uh, when Daniel Craig ones first came out, I thought, oh, here we are. They are gritty and realistic. But I've rewatched bits of a few lately on television, and they do look still far fetched. Yeah. So, what, what's the piece of music you've chosen for the Born Identity? Well, it's the end theme from the Born Identity. It's by Moby, uh, an American. Um, musician and it's called Extreme Ways
Extreme Ways by Moby, uh, followed by our Skang Solo, and the first and fourth Born Identity films are the best. Well, there we are. That's, well. that's Henry's view. <laughs> so thank you, Henry, for that. Fantastic. Oh, and I forgot to mention that our Skang Solo started the whole show off, didn't they, with their own version of um, Asteroid by Pete Moore, and many people might remember that. I often refer to that as the, the music from the Pearl and Dean adverts. Yes, it was, wasn't it? The adverts for... In various drinks and hot dogs. What was that? Kia Ora? Kia Ora, yes. And your hot and dog is ready. Yes, that's it. An hour from now, you'll wish you'd had a Wessler's hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's move on to a dark film, Bob. A dark film, yes. Um, probably the last big film before we went into lockdown, really. Uh, the end of 2019, The Joker. The Joker with Joaquin Felix. Yep. And what a stunning film, which deservedly won him the Best Actor Oscar. And stunning in, in its physicality, stunning in the cinematography, the, the set design, yeah. the lighting, the colouring, the darkness of it all. Oh, very, very dark, yes. And stunning also in the characterisation of the Joker, who is this awful man who you feel an incredible sympathy for. Yeah, I remembered him as a, a youngster reading Batman comics, and he was one of Batman's uh, evil adversaries, yeah. But never, I never thought where he'd come from or why he was evil. But this film tells you exactly why. He's a, a struggling comedian, um, a sad character, a lonely man in his private life, and not a very good comedian either. And it's a sort of... it's tempting isn't it it's it tempts you in it's it's you want you're intrigued you feel drawn in because of the darkness you're almost falling into this dark hole of fantasy and it's of persecution of it, it's a, a nihilism or nihilism yeah a world that embraces yeah. you that sort of almost envelops you like a like a big cloud um it's it's an it's a terrible world that exists and it's a terrible world for the joker isn't it it is a terrible world yeah yeah, yeah. he um yeah, he, he's got no friends no. he's uh struggling everywhere he he has moments uh, there's a moment where he is assaulted on a train uh, there's other moments where he's a bit violent but i thought it was also an allegory for society to a degree yeah that um the world is unkind to people who are a bit different. Yeah. Um, it's set in the mythical Gotham City, but it could equally have been any city in America, couldn't it? And I think it, the film is absolutely hellbent on you becoming sympathetic for the Joker. Yeah, and, and I certainly couldn't fail to have sympathy for him. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so he won lots of awards. Yes, yeah, it won, um, as I say, best, best actor for Joaquin. 
Um, that's the second Joker that had won a, an Oscar because Heath Heath Ledger had won it previously. Yeah, uh, and it won uh, was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and also won for Best Original Score. But I would say it's the performance as the Joker. It's an immersive performance, isn't it? He was. Act, his acting was incredible. Yeah. yeah, he was utterly believable. He looked um, disfigured, struggled. He, you know, he can't find any comfort, can he? Can't fit, find any relief uh, in his life. He was totally into that character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're sort of sympathising. It's not just a call to sympathise with the devil, but it's a sort of a full-blown justification for the hell that he creates. Isn't yeah, it? he gradually sinks into insanity i think and that starts to be the the joker of batman and it's about that point in the film where he meets the man or the boy who will become batman and it's nice in many ways to remove that very uh, superficial two-dimensional evil character that you often get in the uh, probably earlier batman films we never really understood why they were so bad no they were they were just caricature characters yeah. almost penguin and riddler yeah. um crazy outfits crazy characters wonderful cars though <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly did, didn't they? Yeah. Did you ever? You must have watched the uh, the nineteen sixties uh, television series. It was quite cult viewing, wasn't it? Uh, not really. I didn't. I I remember it as being in black and white. Whether it was just our telly, um, <laughs> and it was all full of Kapow and Bam and. Uh, yeah. A strange relationship with Batman and Robin. And this film, The Joker, is, is a million miles from that, isn't it? Uh, yeah, very, very much different. So don't think you're going to be watching an it's, updated version of that. No, it, it's picked a character, which, you know, could have been a historical character almost, and portrayed a story which was utterly believable. So to go with this, what piece of music have we got, Bob? Well, not from the film. Um, it's called Smile, which Charlie Chaplin actually composed for a soundtrack of his 1936 film, and the lyrics weren't added until the 50s. Um, and this is a version that Diana Ross sang in a film called Mahogany. Even though it's burning 
this is Box 39 with Bill Lawrence and Adrian Cohen. Joined this week by Bob May. Yes, we're delighted Bob's here. Uh, This is Box 39. Just to remind you, we're on 106.6 FM. I'm Bill Lawrence. And uh, Adrian Cohen's working the music down there on the first floor. And Ausgang Solo with Henry. He's been doing little bits for us, for us. And Bob's here, having chosen the films for our film night tonight. And we've got to we've got to film five, Bob. We have already. And I always think film five is the best one. If you're going to sit down and watch six films, you're really ready for film five, aren't you? <laughs> I'm ready for film five. What's film five, Okay, Bob? film five is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Unusual title, uh, based on a book, wasn't it? Based on a book by Ken Kesey, yeah. So how would we summarise this for people who have never seen it, maybe heard the title? Um, how would we summarise it? The The title is taken from a poem, I think, and um, I, I can only remember the three lines. It's about um, things leaving a nest. One flew east, one flew west, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's about, and the yeah. cu- cuckoo is a word that describes... Um, not mentally stable, and it's set in a mental, a severely uh, heavy mental institution. So it's it's sort of looking at the treatment of mental illness at a certain time, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? In in essence, the plot is very simple. There's a man played by Jack Nicholson who's committed a crime, statutory rape of a woman. I, I, she told me she was 18. Was his name? <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And he thinks. I will get a much easier ride. Yeah. I won't have to go to prison if I pretend I'm mad. Indeed. And I can just pretend I'm mad and that it'll be fine. Yeah. And I'll, I'll make the next move once I've got there and yeah. decide how that goes. So he's called Randall McMurphy and he's this new patient in a mental institution. And through a series of adventures, we definitely, the plot takes us to a very particular position doesn't it by the end yeah yeah definitely by the end it, it there's a lot of comedy in it um randall p mcmurphy is immediately looking for angles where he can buck the system and work his own angles um he is becomes a, something of a folk hero to the other inmates because he he is definitely charismatic isn't he absolutely um and then the system starts to get the upper hand of him now we're just going to take a little extract from the film and this is the point where he realizes that most of the other inmates have chosen to be there and he's just beginning some you would say the scales are dropping from his eyes as to what's really going on around him so let's just play that extract Cheswick, mm-hmm. you're a voluntary. Mm-hmm. Scanlon, Billy, for Christ's sakes, you must be committed, right? No, 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 no. Oh, you're just a young kid. What are you doing here? You ought to be out in a convertible while bird dogging chicks and banging beaver. What are you doing here, for Christ's sake? What's funny about that? Well. Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You're no crazier than the average all out walking around on the streets, and that's it. Jesus Christ, I can't even believe it. There we are. And thank you, Ausgang Solo, for coming in there with uh, with a piece of music called the Nurse Ratchet Appreciation Society. So 
Nurse Ratchet. Where does Nurse Ratchet fit well, into this? Yes, story? that's an apt, aptly titled piece of music. She is the uh, matron of the ward, if, and certainly she's the protagonist for most of McMurphy's uh, anger and uh, attempts to deflect the punishments and the incarceration. Yeah, it's very much a story of them both trying to break each other, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but she is unflinching, unbending, and her will is such that he just cannot get through to her. And, of course, she's got society on her side, she's got medication on her side, and the fact that he is there uh, compulsorily rather than prison. And it's a tour de force by... Uh, Jack Nicholson, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I, it's the first film I'd ever seen him in, and I was just amazed by his acting in it. So, it's a, a lot of people think of it as a comedy. Uh, you know, the inmates revolt. You know, McMurphy takes them out on a fishing trip. They break that, out on a fishing trip, which is hilarious. Yeah. There's a bit of an all-night orgy, yeah. uh, which is funny. <laughs> yeah. The, his defiance of Nurse Ratchet. That's it. There's, there's a lot of humour, and the fishing trip is a particularly good one. But, but then gradually you see the other side where he's, he's intensely frustrated on the basketball court that he, he can't invoke the, the other patients to think for themselves. Um, and subtly, but probably fairly rapidly, it takes a turn into a very dark tragedy from the comedy which makes the contrast all the more uh, apposite because it becomes a film about mcmurphy's defeat doesn't it yeah yeah he is he is defeated by the system and there's this close-up about four-fifths of the way through the film just an extended close-up of of jack nicholson um and he's lost in thought his yeah. character mcmurphy is lost in thought and there's a real balancing point between the pranks we've seen beforehand, the laughter of the early parts, which would it, it split your sides laughter in places, isn't it? Definitely. It's this it's this descent at the end into tragedy. What's he thinking? His his face is thinking, oh, this is a prison, after all, all and is, it's a yeah. prison I can never escape. All is lost. Yeah. Uh, but but we don't, he never expresses this. I mean, you you have to get there for yourself. You know, what the mystery of what McMurphy is thinking perhaps is the mystery of the, Murphy, of the movie. But it leads up to the last scene, doesn't it, where, where he's found asleep uh, on the floor next to an open window. There's actually an open window where he could escape. Yes. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He chooses not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for reasons which are apparent when you've watched the film. Yeah. Yep. But by choosing not to escape, he's more or less chosen his own fate, hasn't he? He has, yeah. Yeah, and we won't spoil it for people who haven't seen the film. Um, but it it's a powerful, thought-provoking ending to the film, I think, isn't it? It's it's considered to be one of the greatest films ever made and won all five major Oscars. So you've chosen a piece of music to go with this. Yeah, not my normal genre. Um, this is heavy thrash metal, I think it's described as. The band are Metallica, uh, but the, the track seemed appropriately named. It's Sanatorium. in this case. 
Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench and this is Box 39. Not as good as Shakespeare, but it pays my bills. I can't even work a bicycle pump. Well, thank you, Dame Judy Dench, for turning up on Box 39. That's very kind of you. And uh, we're now come to our last film here on our show tonight, the Box 39 Night at the Movies. I hope you've had a good time at the movies tonight, Bob. Enjoyed your popcorn? I certainly have, yes. Enjoyed your Kia Aura? Kia Aura was as juicy as ever. And you glad you uh, had that Wessler's hot stock? I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> time will tell. So, we're ending with a film which is, uh, stars Ryan Gosling, uh, 2011. It's an action drama film. And he plays a Hollywood stunt driver. What's this film called? This film is called Drive. So, tell me about Drive, Bob. Right. Ryan Gosling is the driver. He has no other name in the film. Uh, it begins with a car chase, which is not the, the common slot for it. Uh, he moonlights as a getaway driver for um, thieves and crooks. And it's a, a very clever introduction. He, he is good at his job. Um, the music is good, there's almost no dialogue, and you just get a great feel for the film. I'd never seen Ryan Gosling act before, but I was immediately a fan. Um, so I've written down some words that I thought expressed it. Graceful, bloody, existential. Yeah, bloody um, in three spots. Yeah, there's certainly action. Speak louder than words. Oh, that's very true. Very true. Yeah. yeah, full of car chases and mobsters and armed robberies and stolen cash and messy getaways. But it's not. It's not a typical film. It's not. Respect. It's not because there is um, an unknown backstory. There, he is involved with um, a local gangster and possibly a mob elsewhere. Yeah. Certainly a character he interacts with is heavily indebted to the mob uh, and he tries to help him. But throughout it, he is, he, he is portraying a loner, a very quiet, thoughtful person who's intelligent and um, not an unreasonable person, not violent for the sake of violence. So you've got all these familiar components, but they're put together in a way that sort of revitalizes the genre, don't they? They create a, a sort of reinvigorated and stylized realization of a sort of movie that you've seen before, but you've never seen it like this. No, I certainly hadn't. Um, I, I'd read bits about it in the press in the week leading up to its release, and all of it drew me in. It was, it was so intriguing. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, the director, had taken a fairly short story, actually. It's a slim novel, and kept the story, but altered it hugely at the same time. So it's more about atmosphere than adrenaline, isn't it? Even though it's a sort of chase film, car chase film. That's Yes, that's certainly true. The, the, the menace is apart from a couple of scenes of graphic violence, the menace is more unspoken and unportrayed. It's just a heavy uh, presence lurking somewhere. Yeah. What well, great film. What a range of films you brought for us tonight, Bob. Well, quite a nice mix. I'm, I'm keen to re-watch them all myself. Yeah. Having talked about them tonight. Well, I hope, I hope everyone has, a, 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 has felt inspired, if not to watch any of the films we've talked about, but just to get back in the cinema because it's a wonderful place I, and we've missed it. Yeah, well, I really hope that they all continue to, to be profitable and remain open because there's nothing quite like going to the cinema to see a film. Well, this has been Box 39, then. Our magazine of music, community and human chat, live from Studio One, here at Colm Radio Towns on 106.6 FM Colm Radio. So thank you, Bob. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. And we've got a quick email that we can uh, read out before Bob says uh, takes us through our goodbyes. Uh, uh, from Ron and Reggie. Ah, oh, dear old Ron and Reggie. Yeah, from Brightling Sea there. And uh, they've texted in and they say, We love going to the cinema. And we used to go as little kids every school holiday with our mum. Wow. In the cinema, you are totally immersed in an alternate reality, say Ron and Reg. You can escape your life, your problems, and your responsibilities to expand your understanding or just be ent entertained. We learned a lot from watching movies, and I think a lot of other people have too. It's fun to escape your life. Well, that just says it all. 
Okay, Bob. Right, so from high up here in Studio One on the fourth floor of Cone Radio Towers, we're looking out over the full and fertile lands of northeast Essex, but it's time for us to close Box 39 once more. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. is a guppy production for Cone Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. (laughs) 